This is a good week for me. This week on Wednesday, uh, my wife Carrie and I will celebrate 26 years together. Wedding costs how much? 
All right, the average cost, according to Forbes magazine, is $35,000. Yeah, is it possible enough that terrifies the average? I don't have 35000 I don't know about you. And by the way, by the way, let me just public service announcement, I said this before and I'll say it again, you let your ladies listen up. I'll marry you for free. I, I really will. I mean, you bring your husband, your, your groom, your, your husband to be, and, and y'all can show up in my office as long as you've got the license. That costs a little bit. I mean, I won't charge you a dime. I'll come to your house if you prefer it there. I'll meet you at the lake. We can stand on here with the sun setting behind us. You don't need mountains of flowers. You don't need live swans and acrobats and string quartets. You don't need to feed a four-course meal to hundreds of people you don't even like. <laughs> you can skip all that and be just as married. I promise you. I know it's not gonna work. I know you know wedding time comes and you're gonna just you're gonna shell it out. I mean a lot enough more than you'd spend on a damn thing on a house, you're gonna spend on this one day. You're gonna forget all about it. But here's the thing, why do you do that? Because this is the most important day of my life, and I'm marrying my soulmate, this person who's gonna come and make me blissfully happy for the rest of my days. And if you think that you're really setting yourself up for disappointment. You're really gonna crush this person you're marrying. Where's, where's the fine line? Where is the way we should be? Surely there's a better way, a path between the cynicism and this sentimentality, between this idea that all oh, marriage is a joke and this idea that it's Prince Charming and, and Cinderella happily ever after, because neither of those really work. And the answer is found here in the scripture. Now, if you know the passage I'm about to read. Some of you know it well. And as soon as I called out the uh, reference, you went, uh oh, he's going to talk about that? There's going to be some angry women in this room. Others of you don't know this passage as well, so let's see, because I bet, I bet you're going to learn something you didn't know already if I do my job. So, Ephesians 5, verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Hold on, I'm going to come back to that. Don't worry. Now the church submits to Christ, as the church submits to Christ, so also the wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect his husband. So the irony is, I guarantee you, all of you are fixated right now on verses 22 through 24. When the truth is, that's not the controversy of Christ. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. But I will say this. I heard about a guy once who read that passage for the first time. 
And he came home and he said to his wife, he said, now listen to <laughs> I read in the Bible today that I am the head and you are to submit to me. And so this is what's going to happen. From now on, I call the shots. I hold the remote control. I decide how warm or cold it's going to be in the house. I am in charge and you will listen to me. I want my clothes clean and pressed and laid out for me every morning. I want my food hot and ready to eat when I get home at night. And I want to be treated with the respect I deserve. And after he said those words, he didn't see her again for three days. <laughs> and then after that, he saw her just a little bit out of this eye. <laughs> Guys, be careful with this stuff. What does it mean when the Bible says submit? What does it mean? Does it mean obey? You know, the old uh, marriage vows, some of them used to say that the bride would have to say, I pledge to obey him, but the, but the groom wouldn't have to say that to the bride. I've actually had women uh, leading up to the wedding say, you're not going to make me promise to obey you, are you? And my answer is always, no, I'm not, because that's not what the word submit means in Scripture. And I'll explain why in just a minute. Listen, ladies, I'm a man. I'm a married man. I would love it if it said that. I, I really would. I'd love to stand up here and tell you the husband gets to have his way in everything. I would be thrilled to tell you that. But that's not what it says. On a very serious note, here's also what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if a woman is being abused, her job is to stay and take it. So, ladies, listen to me very carefully. Listen to me very carefully in what I'm about to say. The first time a man raises his hand to you, puts his hands on you violently, you need to do two things. One, you need to get out of the house, and number two, you need to call the police. Those are the two things that have to happen. Not just for your good, but for his too. It is not love to stay and be abused. That's not love. Because he's got sin in his heart that needs to be confronted, and it won't be confronted by you continuing to be there. He needs to face consequences for what he's done. That's the only thing that's going to bring about repentance. And just as importantly, you need to get out of the house and not be beaten. You need to be protected. So I hope I'm clear about that. This is not about submitting to abuse. Abuse is a violation of your marriage covenant. What does it mean? Well, look at verse 21. A lot of us miss this because we read the Bible in English, of course. And our English Bibles have sort of obscured this because in, I bet in your English Bible there's a separation, there's there's bold print in between verse 21 and 22 that would say something like husbands and wives, Christian marriage. And that's not there in the original, of course. In the original Greek, verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. It's all one sentence grammatically. In other words, the submission of wives to their husbands is just an illustration of the principle of mutual submission that should take place in every Christian relationship. What sets us apart from others is that as Christians, if we're following Christ in all of our relationships, our motive is not, what can I get out of you? It's, it's not, how can this relationship benefit me? The motive is, how can I be a blessing to you? That's mutual submission. That means that if you and I are friends or fellow church members or co-workers, I put my own desires 
my own ambitions, even my anger toward you and my irritation toward you about ways you let me down. I put all of that beneath our relationship with one another. I put you first. That's the mission. Within marriage, here's what it looks like. It looks like a, a woman who believes in her husband, who says, instead of, I'm going to do whatever I can to try to mold you into the man I wish I was married to, ladies, come on, let's get it. Does that not happen in your marriage? How, how can I make you into the man that I think I deserve? It goes from that to, how can I bless us together? How can I, how can I put you ahead of me? Now keep in mind, when Paul's writing this, Women lived in a very different time in the Roman Empire in the first century. Women had no rights. You know that a Roman man could divorce his wife for any reason. A Roman woman could not divorce her husband no matter what he did. Women, in, in, in ancient culture, if you were a father of daughters, you wanted to get those girls married as early as possible, 13, 14, get them out of the house. They were an economic drain upon you where sons brought benefit to you. If you were a man and you married, you, you were told by everyone, that woman belongs to you. It was essentially slavery. And, and men judged their wives based on their fruitfulness, based on how many children they could bear, especially how many sons they could bear. And then along comes Jesus. And this man comes along, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, and he's got female followers. He's got women who walk around with him and listen to his teaching, just like male disciples. They actually funded his ministry because some of them were independently wealthy. This is a guy who, on the day of the resurrection, the very first Easter, when he rose from the grave, he saw Peter and John standing there in the empty tomb, but he didn't say anything to them. He waited until they left, and then he revealed himself, spoke to Mary Magdalene, and made a woman the first witness of the resurrected Savior. Paul comes along, and Paul, in spite of his being raised up in a very paternalistic culture, the Pharisaic culture. He's transformed when Christ comes into his life, and he writes these words in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. He's not, he's not abolishing gender distinctions. He's saying it, it doesn't matter now whether you're male or female in terms of how you serve Christ, because Christ values us the same. You're no longer a second-class citizen in his family. You're no longer just a woman. You are a child of the king. And so Paul, if you read his letters, you'll notice that he worked alongside several women, which was so unusual in that culture. He mentions them, women like Priscilla, Phoebe, Julia, Julia. You can look up any other female names he mentions in his letters as co-workers, co-laborers in the kingdom of Christ. And so you put all that together and you realize that if you're a woman in the first century, you come to know Christ, all of a sudden you've got a brand new identity. You've grown up in this world where you're nobody until you have children, and then your identity is tied to them, to becoming someone who says, I'm a family. I matter. God created me for a purpose. And so it must have been very tempting for women in that culture who came to know Christ to say, if I'm a new person in Jesus, then my old commitments don't matter anymore. Then I don't need to be married anymore. I just give myself completely to the Lord. And Paul, I think, is writing this passage to say, because, like I said, this was not controversial at all in the first century. Women were expected to submit to their husbands. So Paul is writing this to say, no, now that you belong to Jesus, your love for your husband should be greater, not less. Your commitment to your marriage should be stronger, not weaker. The world needs to see 
what Christ does to a Christian woman. So ladies, ask yourself a question. Do I build up my husband? See, he may have tremendous physical advantage over you in terms of, of just brute strength, but you have an emotional power over him that no one else in the world does. And he might never tell you this, but the truth is, the way you look at him, the way you talk to him, the way you talk about him, the way you respond when he talks to you, makes a tremendous difference in the shape of his heart, in the direction of his life. You show him nothing but contempt. Let me tell you, ladies, it's going to come back to haunt you because he's going to grow into the man you treat him as. So every eye roll, every every angry, sarcastic comment, every time you compare him to some other man, which, by the way, ladies, other men are no picnic either. Sorry, it's just true. Every time you treat him like a failure, every time you reveal to him how disappointed you are, it's going to come back to you in spades because he's going to live down to the way you treat him, the way you talk to him, the way you talk about him to your friends and, for goodness sakes, your family. How often, ladies, how often do you intentionally build him up? See, there's a reason why the last word of Paul in the subject is the wife must respect her husband. Because a man who knows he's been beat up all day long by this world, but if he knows there's someone at home that still, still believes him, if he knows that he can go home and there'll be one person who will greet him with a smile and a hug and who will say, I still believe him, he can do anything. And you might say, but my husband, you don't know my husband, you may see him in church, he's different at church. When he's at home, he's no good. You just don't understand he's not worthy of respect. And I would say none of us is worthy of respect. We're all sinners. And I would also say, I would also say, I don't know exactly how to make your husband who he needs to be. I, I do think that's the Holy Spirit's job, not yours. I also know how not to change your husband for the better, and that's through criticism. That doesn't work. You may think you're motivating him, but you're doing the opposite. How often do you intentionally build him up? How often do you communicate him to him in a very intentional way? I believe in you. How often do you pray for him for good? <coughs> See, what you don't know is he wants to be your hero. Or at least there was a time when he did. And if you treat him like a hero, he'll become a hero. I really believe that. Because there's, aside from the Holy Spirit of God, there's no force quite so powerful as a supportive life. That's not the controversial part. The controversial part starts in verse 25. Ladies, in case you think I've been hard on you, look at how much longer the section is for husbands than for wives. And when he says, husbands love your wives, that doesn't sound controversial because we've heard pop songs, and pop songs talk about love all the time. But in pop songs, love is about a feeling. It's about an emotion. It's about how you make me feel and how you look and, and how I feel when I kiss you and how I feel when you say my name. And all that's fine. And all that won't get you anything in marriage. It doesn't last. It doesn't sustain. Love that Paul is talking about here is a different kind of love. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Gave himself up for her. Jesus did not die for me and you because we had nice hair and straight teeth and we 
inventing fresh breath. Jesus didn't die for us because we made him feel good about himself. In fact, the opposite is true. Romans 5 says, while we were yet sinners, we were enemies of God and he died for us. Jesus laid down his life for us and that's the kind of love we're supposed to have for our wives. Gentlemen, very few of us will ever have the opportunity to literally put our lives on the line to rescue our wives. But we have the opportunity every day to show her, you are more important to me than me. Your needs matter more than my needs matter. I am putting you first. So, so fellas, how often do you do that? How often do you do something specifically because you know it will bless her and make her day better? Does that happen once a week? Does it happen once a month? Does it happen on a birthday, maybe? I hope. Not once a day. That ought to be the minimum, right? I mean, Paul was talking about a constant lifestyle to continually lay ourselves down, to set aside our emotions and our desires and our motives and our anger and our selfishness and say, I'm going to put you first. How often do you do that? I mean, here's a, here's a real easy way to apply this sermon. Tomorrow morning, wake up and say, what is one thing I can do that would just make her see she's important? Why do we do this? What's the purpose? The purpose is not to make her happy. Because you can't do that. You and I don't have the power to make her happy. The purpose is to make her holy. Look at verse 26. It says, Jesus died for us, laid down his life for us to make her holy. Cleansing her by washing with water and word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you get that picture? Jesus saw us and said, I'm going to redeem you. And he gave his life for us to set us free from our sins, and he has spent every day since, every day since you said yes to his invitation, his, his call, his proposal, you might say. Every day since then, he has been stripping away everything in you that stands between you and the perfect image of God. That's his purpose. That's why he died for us. That's our goal as husbands in marriage. This is hard for us to understand. But here's the truth. This is what the Bible says about marriage. God created your wife as a daughter of God. A precious child created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared ahead of time for her to do, for only her to do. She is intended to bless the world in a spectacular way, a way that will draw countless numbers of people to salvation. And your job as a husband, my job as a husband, is to free her up to be all that she is intended to be in Christ. To see that vision in her the same way God sees her. To pray for her daily, to live out an example before her, to encourage her, to give her permission to follow her gifting and her calling in Christ. What it basically comes down to, guys, is when it says that you're her head, it means you're her pastor, not her boss. You are the apostle of her heart. You are called by God to steer her and encourage her toward all the plans God has for her. And when you do that, something amazing happens. Not just to the world, but for you. After all, Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. 
Everything you give to her comes back to you. Everything you sacrifice for her, you get back hundredfold. I have never to this day met the man who says, man, I wish I hadn't loved my wife so much. I wish I hadn't had something to do with that woman. <laughs> it comes back to you. And then, here we go, down to verse 31. Here's the key. Verse 31 is a quote from Genesis 2.24. Remember the first marriage, Adam, Eve, and Rib, and they come together and it says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, some mysterious words. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. What does he mean? He means that God created marriage. You ready for this? God created marriage not to make us happy. God created marriage not even to produce children, because let's face it, every other species on earth produces children without getting married. God created marriage as a tool to shape us into his image and as a beautiful picture of the relationship God wants to have with you and me. It's a tool for holiness because as you learn to love your husband, as you love to learn your wife, you're also learning to love Jesus. And as you two come together in that way, you're showing the world an impeccable picture of the love God has for us. Because think about it. If the world sees the kind of marriage that's described here, they're seeing something they've never seen before. There's no, there's no romantic comedy. There's no Shakespearean love story. There's no Jane Austen book. None of it captures what's talked about here, which is a woman who loves her husband so much that instead of trying to shape him into the man she wishes he was, she puts him first and loves him, and he grows into the man God created him to be. And a man who, even though the world tells him, you need to be the boss, you need to take control, he says, no, I'm going to lay down my life for my wife. I'm going to, put, I'm going to promote her in every way. I'm going to promote her good. I'm going to love her as she is. And I'm going to help her become the woman God created her to be, a child of God, spectacular insight. And the world looks at that and sees, how did you do that? Man, your God must be an amazing God if you could do something like that. I want something. You'll have the ability to say, this is what God wants for you in his relationship. See how it works. And that changes. Once, once you think about marriage in that way, it changes everything. It changes the way you look at problems in marriage. Because if, if the point of marriage is to make you happy, then whenever there's problems, whenever there's conflict, that's a bad thing, right? That is horrible. In fact, you feel betrayed. You feel like, well, God has let me down. But if marriage's point is no longer to make you happy, but to make you holy, then the challenges that come along, you're not exactly glad for them, but you say, okay, I see how God can use this. Because let's be honest, even if you marry the right person for you, if such a person exists, there's still going to be hard times. Guys, can we, can we be honest? Aren't there times when just the sound of her chewing makes you mad? Right? Do you have to chew that loud? Ladies, aren't, aren't there times when you just look at him and you think, what did your mother do to you? I mean, aren't, aren't there moments where you're just like, what, who were you raised by? And, and in those moments, and, and then it gets worse, and then there are economic problems, there are financial issues, there are health problems, there are problems with the kids, there, there, there are all kinds of conflicts that arise and tragedies and grief. And in those moments, in order to make it work, 
You can either give up, you can either run screaming in the other direction, you can either build a wall between yourselves and decide to be roommates at best. Or you can say, this isn't going to work unless I let go of some things. I've got to let go of some of the things I'm holding against him. I've got to let go of some of the anger I hold towards her. I've got to let go of some of these expectations. When I got married, I thought it was going to be like this. I've got to, I've got to let go of that and realize that's not realistic. And over here is the realistic picture. I've got to let go of, man, when I got married, I thought, well, I, I may change in some ways, but I'm never, I'm never changing here. Well, that may be the, the area where I need to change the most. And when you let go of things like that, it hurts. In fact, it feels like death. It feels like you're dying a little bit. Guess what the Word of God says about Christian discipleship? Jesus didn't say, if you want to follow me, pick up your couch cushion with your remote control and, and, and go on a leisurely stroll. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Following Jesus is a constant journey of self-denial. It's a constant journey of dying to yourself a little more every day. So as you are doing the things necessary to make a marriage work, you're also becoming more and more the person who Christ called you to be. You see how it works? How marriage is a tool God uses to make us holy? You see how it works? But once you stop demanding that your spouse make you happy and instead say, okay, Lord, show me how this relationship can make me holy. Show me how I can love this person and loving this person become the person I was called to be. And if you haven't reached that point in your marriage, if you're married, if you haven't reached that point where you said, okay, Lord, I'm done. I can't do this. Show me how to love this person. And you haven't been married long enough. Because it's coming. So in conclusion, let me say, let me speak to three kinds of people this morning. The first is the one who says, Jeff, you don't understand. My marriage is terrible. And you, you may see him here and think he's fine, but behind closed doors he's different. You may think she's a great wife, but you don't know what it's like in our house. And I would say two things. I would say to you, Number one, you're not alone. There, you look around this room, all the couples in this room, there's not one here who has a perfect marriage. I guarantee you. There's not one here, not one, who hasn't at some point thought, I don't know if we're going to make it. We just testified. Carrie and I will be married 26 years on Wednesday. You ask her, she'll tell you the same thing I'm about to tell you. At least two of those 24 years were bad enough that we didn't know if we were going to make it. Marriage is hard. You're not second. Marriage isn't meant to make you happy. I've said it already. I just want you to hear that again. If you're expecting this man, this woman in your life to make you happy, they can't do it. And if you place that expectation on them, it will crush them and it will disappoint you. Third, your marriage is worth fighting for. And when I say fighting for, I don't mean getting all possessive. I mean saying to yourself, okay, what do I have to do to become the person that he, that she needs me to be to make this work? There is great value to be found in marriage counseling, and, and I would urge you, if you're experiencing difficulties, to, to get that help now. Don't wait until your spouse consults a lawyer. Get help now, and if you want 
uh, the number of a good marriage counselor. Come talk to one of us, and we will help you out with that. But beyond counseling, even with a counselor, it won't work until you reach the point where you say, okay, I'm going to stop focusing on all the ways my spouse disappoints me and instead focus on what is God trying to teach me through this and what changes do I need to make? Take responsibility. It's worth fighting for. So many couples that have called off way too soon before the good stuff started. Second group is people here who say, I'm divorced, and this is really hard to listen to because I feel like I failed. I feel like I am second class because of what happened. And I would say, I've not been through divorce myself, but I've walked through it with good friends, with church members, family members. And every single time, what I've seen is, that was the worst experience that person ever had. Didn't matter if they were the one who initiated the divorce or not. Either way, it was the most painful thing they ever went through in their life. I've never met a single, a single person who says, boy, divorce was a great thing. You know, when God in Malachi says, I hate divorce, it's because he knows what it does to everyone who goes through it. So you are not being judged here today. No one in this room looks down on you for what you went through. In fact, God certainly doesn't because in the Old Testament, he over and over again compares himself to a man whose wife has left him for another woman. So God knows exactly that. And you are not judged. The third person I want to talk to here is the single person. Single people, I want you to hear carefully. We've been talking about marriage, and marriage is a wonderful thing, it's a beautiful thing, but marriage is not God's will for everyone. What drives me up a wall is people who are very well-intentioned Christians who walk around saying to single people, oh, just hang in there, God's got somebody special picked out for you. Would you say that to the Apostle Paul? Would you say that to Jesus? Jesus, just hang in there, God's got a nice little Jewish girl for you. <laughs> Jesus and Paul lived complete and whole and, and meaningful lives without ever being married. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 and says, hey, if you're married, go for it. Serve the Lord with all your heart. But me, myself, personally, I thank God I'm not married. It's a gift from God that I'm single because I can give myself completely to His service. I don't have to worry about a, a wife at home that I have to please. I can I can focus on pleasing him alone. I can lay down my life. If I'm martyred for the faith, hallelujah, I go to heaven, and I don't leave starving kids at home with no provider. So if you are single, recognize the opportunity you have to serve God in a way that married people can't. And if you intend to be married someday, if you hope to be married someday, this is the second thing I would say to you. Don't settle for anything less than a man or woman fits this criteria. When I'm with him, when I'm with her, I'm better. When I'm with him, when I'm with her, my family, my friends will acknowledge I'm more like Jesus in those moments. I'm full of joy. I'm full of ability to love others. I want to be in church. I want to be serving God. He doesn't draw me away from Christ. He drives me to him. She encourages me to become the man I was if they don't fit that category, it doesn't matter what they look like or, or what kind of car they drive or what their bank account is like. It's not, it's not the right one for you unless they draw you closer to Christ. Out of those of every age, every marital status, I say this and then we're done. This is a passage about marriage, yes, but even more so, this is a passage about the gospel. 
This is one of the most beautiful expressions of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. Because what it says is that God came walking along and he saw us in all of our ugliness, in all of our brokenness. You and I were a train wreck. Every single one of us. We were to be avoided at all costs. Jesus did not walk past. He did not turn away. Instead, he said, I believe in you. I'd rather die for you than live without you. And he gave his life for us, that he might make us into something the world has never seen before. And the world will never be able to. That's how much he loves you. And that is his plan for you. And that is his plan in the lives of others through you. So glory, hallelujah, for our bridegroom in heaven, Jesus Christ, who will be ours someday.